0: Greetings. You have tuned into Renegade Files, your unsolved mystery and paranormal podcast. I am your guide, Lex Gordon, broadcasting an encrypted signal from the Jungle Villa outpost deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files episode number 5 Anonymous and the Birth of Hacktivist Culture. I think I will do all of the episodes in the robot voice from now on. Just kidding that could get annoying. It is actually annoying already. Okay, I'll stop now. End of line.
1: Hi there, what's up today? So this episode falls more into the covert culture and dark tech arenas, and strictly speaking, it could also be considered true crime. But much like the term conspiracy theorist, the description true crime has strayed from its literal meaning and developed a certain expectation within a more narrow context. Semantics aside, the subjects covered in this episode fall squarely within the Renegade Files' mission of reporting not just unsolved mysteries and paranormal events, but covert culture and dark tech as well. As such, this is a topic that I just love diving into. I've had a computer my whole life, and we're now in an era where young people going to college have had a mobile screen in their hands for as long as they can remember. As our society and our individual lives become increasingly connected through the Internet of Things and the expanding roles of AI, big data, and frankly social engineering, the questions posed and highlighted by some of the original hackers become more important than ever. So put your smartphone in the microwave, grab your Guy Fawkes mask, your laptop, and your backpack, and join Renegade Files as we brute force our way past InfoSec in through a back door and docks the deep world of
0: Anonymous and the birth of hacktivist culture Anonymous and the birth of hacktivist culture Anonymous and the birth of hacktivist culture
1: Anonymous and the birth of hacktivist culture Anonymous and the birth of hacktivist culture Who owns your private information? Who do you, almost unknowingly and at least uncaringly, allow to have access to it? Who decides what you can and cannot read, say, or talk about? Who owns your bank account information? You or the bank? The federal government just proposed legislation that would give them the ability to dig through all of your financial history any and every time you deposit or withdraw $600 or more. The bill quickly met widespread opposition as being positively unconstitutional, so they reworded it to be $10,000 or more, which changes nothing about its nature. Whatever becomes of that bill, the fact is, they must have probable cause to access your private records, at least for now. This is the kind of thing old-timers mean when they say freedom must be fought for on a daily basis. People saying we need to rewrite the Constitution would do well to reread it. Meanwhile, our top-ranking government officials somehow become millionaires, all the while refusing to let us see their financial histories, yet they want to look through all of ours on a whim. The sovereignty of information security, the access to information, the right to privacy, and free speech are all wrapped up in technologies that few understand and even fewer control. This creates fertile ground for the hacker who often values a very specific combination of the right to know about someone else and the right to keep someone else from knowing about them. We tend to think of the hacker as an exclusively modern phenomenon that has arisen in recent years as the result of an increasingly interconnected world of personal, corporate, and governmental information. However, there have been hackers since the earliest days of communication technology. In this episode of Renegade Files, we'll start with a brief history of information hacking. Then we'll look into some of the most infamous modern cases, events, and perpetrators. And finally, we'll dive deep into one of the most well-known but least understood hacker movements in history, Anonymous. Hacker History. The image of the 90s Hollywood hacker conjures up a clandestine computer lab in a dark, abandoned, dripping warehouse corner where a jilted genius turns his computer hacking skills on the corporate machine that did him wrong or types furiously to access some file that would clear his name once and for all. As technology advanced and equipment grew smaller, the cliché hacker also evolved into a shifty-eyed, heavily-caffeinated cybercrime rebel teenager at a coffeehouse table, a glowing face behind a laptop screen, shrouded by a black hoodie. Today, our modern media shills have muddied the waters of who the real hackers are and what they actually do by blaming everything that inconveniences their version of the narrative on the new boogeyman, the Russian hacker, mwahaha. But hackers have been around since the very inception of electronic communication. Arguably, one of the first ever information hacks occurred in 1903 at the inaugural demonstration of new technology called wireless telegraphy by John Ambrose Fleming, who invented the radio vacuum tube amplifier, and Guillermo Marconi, the inventor of the radio. The new wireless telegraphy machine was a system of interconnected devices that could transmit telegraph messages wirelessly across radio waves and then project the written messages onto a screen using a projector. So, quite literally, the first text messages were sent in 1903. The idea of transmitting messages wirelessly had been kicked around for some time, but what made this presentation special was that it had been widely and publicly claimed by Marconi and Fleming that they had solved the problem of wireless messages being intercepted or tampered with. They had not. The system had been promoted heavily as being entirely secure. At the same time, Marconi had registered the only patent for any and all wireless transmissions. British magician and inventor, Neville Maskeline, was infuriated by this patent situation, and so were many people, but Maskeline took action. As Fleming addressed the reporters, scholars, and engineers that filled London's Royal Institution Grand Auditorium, all of them waiting for Marconi's wireless message to be received from 300 miles away. Neville Maskline broadcast his own wide-range frequency signal of tremendous power and interrupted the Marconi transmission with a message that said, quote, Rats! Rats, rats, rats. Then the machine typed out this poignant quote from Shakespeare's Henry V. Now entertain conjecture of a time when creeping murmur and the pouring dark fills the wide vessel of the universe from camp to camp. To the foul womb of night, the hum of either army stidily sounds, that the fixed sentinels almost receive the secret whispers of each other's watch. This is a very clever critique of Fleming and Marconi's claims that their system was impervious to attack or interception. Professor Fleming called this intrusion on his presentation an act of, quote, Scientific hooliganism which I think is a way cooler term than hacking. Fast forward 46 years to 1949 when John von Neumann wrote a paper called Theory and Organization of Complicated Automata, which outlined speculations that computer programs may develop or be programmed with the ability to reproduce themselves. This theory has come to underline the creation of the modern computer virus. In 1955, the term hacking was first used in the MIT Tech Model Railroad Club in reference to working on the electrical and machinery components of the club's model trains. In 1957, Joe Joy Bubbles in A blind seven-year-old boy discovered that he could whistle the fourth E above middle C, which is a frequency of 2600 hertz, and by doing so could interrupt the AT&T telephone system's automated call routing systems, which opened the doors for phone freaking or hacking of the phone systems, mainly to make long-distance calls for free. Charging fees to call places out of your hometown used to be a thing. In 1979, David Mitnick broke into a Digital Equipment Corporation computer system called The Art. Mitnick went on to get arrested for a series of hacking charges in 1995, and eventually became a highly sought-after computer security consultant. An event in 1980 gave us, in large part, the iconic image of the hacker we know today. After an FBI investigation into a security breach of the company NCSS, The New York Times reported the incident and described hackers as. technical experts, skilled, often young, computer programmers who almost whimsically probe the defenses of a computer system, searching out the limits and the possibilities of the machine. Despite their seemingly subversive role, hackers are a recognized asset in the computer industry, often highly prized, and part of a mischievous but perversely positive hacker tradition. The 1980s went on to see some of the most spectacular hacker fireworks to this day. A group called the 414s broke into 60 computer systems, including the Los Alamos National Laboratory, which prompted a Newsweek article and an ensuing House of Representatives hearing that resulted in the passing of several new computer security violation laws. A hacker going by the name of Lex Luthor founded the Legion of Doom, which had the reputation of attracting the best of the best. Eventually, a Legion of Doom programmer called Fiber Optic got into a feud with another member and was kicked out of the hacking group. Fiber Optic, Fiber spelled with a PH, and his friends then created the rival hacking agency known as Masters of Deception, or M.O.D. The original M.O.D. hackers were, listing them by their hacker aliases, Fiber Optic, Scorpion, Acid Freak, H.A.C., Corrupt, and Outlaw. Another member of Masters of Deception was Red Knight, who was also part of the Texas-based Cult of the Dead Cow, which is a hacking and media organization that could be the subject of an entire episode by itself. In 1986, the U.S. Congress passed the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which specifically made it a crime to break into a computer system. As soon as the law was passed, the hacker known as The Mentor was arrested. The Mentor then published his now-famous Hacker Manifesto in the e-zine Frack. The Ezine Frac is also spelled with a PH. In fact, it's probably a safe bet that any word or name that starts with an F is spelled with a PH from here on out in this episode, so let's just go with that. Masters of Deception organized their hacking group so that any divulgence of information they gathered through their pursuits were only released to people whom they vetted through a system of initiation and who showed a proven respect for the craft. A demonstration of responsibility was required on the part of the initiate. This allowed the MOD to compartmentalize sensitive information and avoid the widespread dissemination of content that could have been used for nefarious deeds. Masters of Deception were active throughout the late 80s until 1983 things started to unravel. It took the FBI working with a Secret Service task force to find and arrest five members of Masters of Deception for violations of the Comprehensive Crime Control Act which gave the Secret Service jurisdiction over computer fraud crimes. Some received probation, and a few received sentences of a year or two for taking part in what has come to be known as the Great Hacker War. After this legal action, the members of Masters of Deception went on to do various things. The hacker Corrupt, or John Threat, became a film producer, editor, and director, and founded the now-defunct entertainment gossip website Urban Expose. That URL, urbanexpose.com, is listed for sale online, so you might be able to grab it if you're interested. With all of this legal and media attention on the hacker subculture in the 80s, we see a new genre of fiction emerge, cyberpunk. William Gibson's novel, Neuromancer, was published in 1984, and it tells us the story of Case, a futuristic computer hacker. This is the book that first gave us such terms as cyberspace, the Matrix... SIMSTEM and ICE, or Intrusion Countermeasure Electronics, what we would call antivirus software today. The mid-80s also saw the creations of both the aforementioned EZine zine FRAC and The Hacker's Handbook, which was published and re-released multiple times between 1985 and 1990 in the UK. The author of The Hacker's Handbook is now a professor of digital forensics at Birmingham City University in England. The remainder of the 80s and the entirety of the 1990s saw a long string of hacking events and the odd arrest or two as hackers and computer security experts, in many cases former friends, only separated by a plea deal and a corporate hire, jousted across the slow fade out of the BBSs and into the brave new era of the World Wide Web. This leads us to Anonymous. Today, when you mention the name Anonymous in the context of computer security or hacking culture, it conjures up images of black hoodies and Guy Fawkes masks and an organized hacking group bent on a specific current event and its retribution online for what that group feels to be injustice. And today, Anonymous could be said to be just that, as much as it could be said to be anything. But if Anonymous is anything, it is decentralized, leaderless, and charterless. Anyone can be a part of Anonymous just by saying they are. Since there is no formal structure, there is no way to tell who is taking some action on behalf of the actual group Anonymous because ultimately there is no group structure to be or not be a part of. This can and does quite often lead to some pretty unsavory activities perpetrated in the name of Anonymous and there is nothing anyone can or will ever do about it. This is a very difficult thing for most people to wrap their head around, particularly establishment worshipping people who believe that the only things to exist are either individuals or the organized businesses and government departments those individuals work for. The thought of a group with similar goals and a vague code of ethics but that has no borders or barriers to entry and that has no structure to prevent someone with vastly opposing ideals and agendas from claiming to represent that group boggles the mind. But there are a few key players and a few watershed moments we can look at to get a better idea for exactly what Anonymous really is, or was, or was hoped to be. Anonymous originated on a user-content-driven website called 4chan. 4chan was created in 2003 by Christopher Poole, also known as Moot, as a place for him and his friends to post anime pictures and whatever else they were into. Today, 4chan gets 20 million unique monthly visitors and logs up to 900,000 image posts per day. Today, there are many boards on 4chan, and that's 4chan with the numeral 4-C-H-A-N. And these multiple boards on 4chan focus on a wide range of topics and interests, mostly focused on some kind of visual art like comics, drawing, anime, fantasy art, but there's other things there as well. 4chan spawned what we know today as meme culture, and there is a very high likelihood that any meme that you have ever seen more than once was originally created and posted somewhere on 4chan. The way that 4chan works is that users can create usernames if they wish, but there is no registration, so there's no way to keep a consistent username on the site. The boards employ what is known as ephemeral posting and thread archiving, meaning that the threads with engaging content are kept up, but threads that lack interaction are left to be eventually deleted. In the world of 4chan, therefore, posts that get attention and garner interaction quickly become valued, because those are the posts that create lasting threads. As 4chan grew, it divided in a tribal way where various boards sprung up to service public interests. Amid this division sprung up the now infamous B board, which started as the place to post anything that did not fit into any of the other many specialized category boards. In the realm of, say, a female hero anime art board on 4chan, the best artwork generates the longest-lasting threads, so that creates an incentive to post better and better art as the board grows. However, on the B board, where anything can be posted, the function of ephemeral posting and thread archiving rewards the content that gets the most views and comments. There is no one specific topic to be on or off of no one art style to be better or worse than so this creates fertile ground for the most shocking and offensive images because in a room of otherwise random pictures those are the ones that get the most attention therefore the b-board on 4chan is enter at your own risk and i'm not even kidding if you're worried about seeing something gross or that you can never unsee my advice is don't even go there at all and part of that attitude is exactly the way the people who frequent the B board want it. It's a freaky, weird, disturbing, but generally funny community of internet ruffians. So this combination of the unsavory nature of the 4chan b-board content, and the fact that the site has no registration, so you can't reliably keep the same name, caused and causes people to just post things there using the default name that populates the form when you upload an image to the board. That name, anonymous. So a curious mental effect happens as you scroll through the site, partly because a lot of people who post things on 4chan do create a username. So it looks like there are a bunch of people with all different names mixed in with multiple posts by someone named Anonymous. So it became sort of a 4chan inside joke. What if all of these random, mostly horrible, some amazing posts on 4chan are really all one person named Anonymous? And the 4chan users started using the name like you would use Jane Doe. Hey, who told you that, Anonymous? Did you delete that comment? Wasn't me. Must have been anonymous. Are you with me so far? Because this is where it gets fun. So there was an early virtual online computer game called Habbo Hotel. It was mostly for kids and you could set up an account there for free. You would create an avatar, which was a little cartoon person that you could select its gender clothes, hair, color, hairstyle, maybe a hat. And that would be your persona as you moved around the various places of the hotel and talked to the other people there. Tabo Hotel was generally fun, peaceful, lighthearted, where lonely kids could pretend to be for a while. So at one point, the people frequenting 4chan came up with the idea to infiltrate the world of that game. Now, this was also purely for fun. Probably some of their younger brothers and sisters liked the game, so that's how they knew about it. Or maybe some of them had played it when they were kids. So they coordinated a time to do it, and a prearranged avatar design, then, through the combination of all setting up Habbo hotel profiles and simultaneously communicating across the 4chan boards, they arrived in the game all together. Hundreds of them. Their little cartoon avatars were all black guys with big afro hairdos wearing black suits and ties. They did crazy things to infuriate the kids trying to play the game, such as form big circles around two or three other players so they couldn't go anywhere, or use their bodies to line up and spell out offensive words. (laughs) Their most celebrated moment came when they colluded to block off the Habbo Hotel pool from all the other players. By all accounts, the pool was one of the favorite features of the game, and now, as a triumphant 4chan meme of the black-suited Afro avatar proclaimed... The pool is closed. Now, this moment in bizarre internet history is important because I think it may have been the first time that this loosely affiliated group of people in hundreds of different places around the world realized that together they could do something that individually they could never do. I honestly feel like it was transformational on a deep level, and it's important to understand that these were, by and large, computer pioneers with deep feelings about the freedom of speech, access to information, and the rights of people to protect themselves from governments who might seek to stifle their ability to speak, read, learn, or communicate. It's hard to imagine that these same people who would dress up like men in black to harass kids playing a video game were the same people that cared so passionately about free speech and the rights of communication for citizens under totalitarian regimes that they would get together online to affect global change. But that is exactly who these people were. At least that's who some of them were. Since the built-in joke about some stranger named Anonymous was already a part of the 4chan world where these computer users met and spent time, when they started to extend their collective internet activism beyond the Habbo Hotel pool to more serious issues, they simply adopted the collective name Anonymous. They hacked into a few sites they felt were doing things that they, for whatever reason, didn't like and the reports found their way into the news stations. The first big report was a story on Fox News who claimed that there was now a sophisticated international hacker group known as Anonymous and that no one in law enforcement was sure of their intentions or goals. At this time, in reality, no one in Anonymous was sure of that either. Their first major target was a neo-Nazi radio show host named Hal Turner, who had insane ideas about race and laws in America, but had a huge following on an online radio show. He made the mistake of ridiculing someone's post on 4chan, and this drew the attention of what was becoming anonymous. So this guy had drawn first blood on one of their own, and he was a neo-Nazi internet radio show host, so all bets were off. The anonymous crew had started to become a bit more organized at this point, around 2006 or 2007. They started to call into the Hal Turner radio show to troll him with all kinds of provocative statements about race or whatever they thought he would react to. They sent hundreds of pizzas to his house, they crashed his website with a DDOS attack. And at this point, I'll give you a quick explanation of what a DDoS attack is. You may or may not have heard the term before, but it bears defining since it is one of the most treasured tools in the anonymous toolbox. DDoS stands for Distributed Denial of Service. A DDoS attack is a coordinated application performed by multiple computer users, whereby a program is set into motion that fires repeating requests for service to a particular domain name or extension of that domain name. It also can be focused on the domain name server specifically, making it impossible to reroute out from under. The result is that so much traffic is being processed by the website that no further requests for service can be replied to. Think of it like this. If you wanted to go through a Starbucks drive through but for an hour before you wanted to go and until an hour after you wanted to go, 500,000 people in 500,000 cars had gotten together and agreed to all go through every Starbucks drive through within 100 miles of your location for that two hours, you would be unable to get into the drive through You probably would be unable to get within five miles of the Starbucks itself. But... When all of these people left, the Starbucks would still be there and everything would otherwise be the way it was before they did what they did. I mean, they might be out of vanilla syrup by then, but you get the point. That's all a DDoS attack does. It floods a website with traffic for as long as the people doing it agree to do it. And not with a guy repeatedly typing the enter key on a keyboard, but with a program that types the enter key thousands of times every second. And a few thousand people run that same program at the same time, so the website's done but when they stop, the website becomes available again and no physical harm has been done to any equipment or circuitry. So this, among other things, is what Anonymous did to Hal Turner's neo-Nazi radio show website. And that was that. Another thing they did was hack into his emails and discover that he was not a real neo-Nazi, or maybe he was, but he was also an FBI informant, and Anonymous posted those emails, which caused Turner to lose credibility with his neo-Nazi audience. Turner was eventually prosecuted for threatening the life of a federal judge, So shutting down Turner's website and discrediting him among his fans was one of the first major things Anonymous did as an organized operation. The next major Anonymous op arose through a weird chain of events like so many things in the hacker world. What happened was that sometime around January 2008, someone posted a video of Tom Cruise proselytizing Scientology wherein he says a few ridiculous things. The video was meant for strictly internal Scientology use, but now it had been leaked and it was on the internet. One of the things Tom Cruise basically says in the video is that if you are a Scientologist and you pass a car accident, you're compelled to stop because you know that you're the only one that can really help. This statement and others like it made by Cruz in the video were widely ridiculed online, and the leaked video started to be posted with overdubbed commentary and all of the internet shenanigans you might imagine. The Church of Scientology responded, in line with their historical tradition of legal action, by issuing threatening legal letters referencing the DMCA, or Digital Millennium Copyright Act, to all of the webmasters where the video appeared. One of these sites was 4chan. The 4chan community redistributed these letters and looked at the entire thing as censorship of free speech on the internet. Those 4chan users who had collectively identified themselves as anonymous when exposing Hal Turner, now turned their attention to Scientology in an anonymous op dubbed Chanology. Anonymous started to basically troll the Church of Scientology by doing some of the same things they had done to Hal Turner. Sending hundreds of pizzas to their offices, sending faxes of black construction paper to the Church of Scientology fax machines, back when fax machines were still around, which would empty the fax machine ink, which at the time was very expensive, prank calling the Scientology phone lines to effectively block out other callers. As this was happening, the Church of Scientology escalated their legal campaign to have the Tom Cruise video removed from the internet anywhere it was posted. This resulted in what has come to be known as the Streisand effect, whereby something that someone actively tries to eradicate from the internet becomes ubiquitous for the very reason of the publicity generated as they are trying to remove it. The name of this effect comes from a time when Barbara Streisand demanded that a photo of her oceanfront California home be taken down from anywhere it had been posted online, resulting in hundreds of thousands if not millions of copies of the image being posted everywhere, complete with plenty of snarky comments. So the same thing happened when the Church of Scientology tried to take down the Tom Cruise video every time it popped up. They were overwhelmed by uploads in millions of variations. You can still find the video online today. You can also still find pictures of Barbara Streisand's house. The more they pushed to have the video removed, the more they angered the anonymous crew. This back-and-forth went along for a while, with Anons, as some Anonymous members call themselves, escalating their online antics by flooding Scientology message boards with off-topic comments, tying up the Dianetics hotlines, and anything else they could think of to basically be a thorn in the side of the Church of Scientology. Eventually, Anonymous agreed that they would shut the Church of Scientology main website down. It started with a single post on the 4chan board on Tuesday, January the 15th, 2008. The post said, among other things, quote, It's time to use our collective resources to do something we believe is right. Talk amongst one another, find a better place to plan it, and then carry out what can and must be done. They spread the word and coordinated the attack. Anonymous launched a DDOS attack through the low-orbit ion cannon program and shut down access to the Scientology website for a weekend. At least a weekend. While this was happening, someone in the Anonymous community suggested the idea to make a video addressed to the leaders of Scientology. Others quickly agreed, so a few members of Anonymous produced what is now known as the Anonymous Declaration of War video. This was initially posted on January 21st, 2008. This video was the first time that Anonymous started referring to itself by name in public outside of 4chan inside jokes and scattered bulletin board posts online. Let's listen to the first Anonymous declaration of war video from 2008.
0: Hello, leaders of Scientology. We are Anonymous. Over the years, we have been watching you. Your campaigns of misinformation, your suppression of dissent, your litigious nature, all of these things have caught right with the leakage of your latest propaganda video into mainstream circulation. The extent of your malign influence over those who have come to trust you as leaders has been made clear to us. Anonymous has therefore decided that your organization should be destroyed for the good of your followers, for the good of mankind and for our own enjoyment. We shall proceed to expel you from the internet and systematically dismantle the Church of Scientology in its present form. We recognize you as serious opponents and do not expect our campaign to be completed in a short time frame. However, you will not prevail. Through river against the angry masses of the body politic your choice of methods your hypocrisy and the general artlessness of your organization have sounded its death now. You have nowhere to hide. Because we are everywhere. You will find no recourse and attack. Because for each of us that falls, ten more will take this place. We are cognizant of the many who may decry our methods as parallel to those of the Church of Scientology. Those who espouse the obvious truth that your organization will use the actions of Anonymous as an example of the persecution of which you have for so long warned your followers. This is acceptable to Anonymous, in fact, it is encouraged, we are your SPs, over time, as we begin to merge our pulse with that of your church, the suppression of your followers will become increasingly difficult to maintain, believers will become aware that salvation needn't come at the expense of their livelihood, they will become aware that the stress and the frustration that they feel is not due to us, but a source much closer to them. Yes, we are SPs but the sum of suppression we could ever muster is eclipsed by that of your own RTC. Knowledge is free. We are anonymous. We are legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Expect us.
1: As Vandetta, an anonymous Chanology operative, says, with that video, internet activism, as we know today, was born. So what happened was that with this video, there came a growing sentiment among members of Anonymous that they should stage a real-time protest. They would take to the streets and protest at every Church of Scientology location they could find around the world. This would be something totally new for them, moving out from behind the protection of the computer screen and into the real world, as it were. When the idea began to take hold and it became apparent that the event might truly take place, Anonymous produced and released their Code of Conduct video for those who plan to actually attend the protests. The Code of Conduct video listed 22 rules that Anonymous members going to the events should follow to ensure, quote, epic win and no loss of hit points on your part. Let's listen.
0: The following video is intended as guide for Anonymous preparing to engage in their first real-life public demonstration. It will also provide a refresher for those of you who have experience with this modality of petition. The purpose of the demonstration in a modern Western society is to convey a message to the public. In keeping with this objective, Anonymous has drafted 22 rules that Anonymous can follow in order to assure epic win and no loss of hit points on your part. Rule number zero. Rules 1 and 2 of the internet still apply. At this juncture, something that the real world can appreciate. Although Mimi's speak between fellow anonymous is acceptable. Focus on the target and keep it to a minimum. Rule number 1. Stay cool. Rule number 2. Stay cool. Especially when harassed. You are an ambassador of anonymous. Although individuals trying to disrupt your demonstration will get on your nerves, you must not lose your temper. Doing so will harm the protest and tarnish the reputation of anonymous. Rule number three. Comply with the orders of law enforcement officers above all else. Doing otherwise is harmful to the demonstration as a whole and may compromise your performance as a human being. Do not request badge numbers unless you are being treated in a very abusive manner. As doing so will anger officers. Rule number 4. Notify city officials. Most jurisdictions either have rules about public protests, or would prefer to be notified that they are taking place. Know the rules for your jurisdiction and abide by them. Rule number 5. Always be across the street from the object being protested. Rule number 6. In the absence of a road, find another natural barrier between yourself and the target of protest. Doing so will make it more difficult for individuals hostile to your cause to come and harass you. Rule number seven, stay on public property. You may be charged for trespassing if you do not. Rule number eight, no violence. Rule number nine, no weapons. The demonstration is a peaceful event. Your weapons, you will not need them. Rule number 10, no alcohol or pre-drinking. Violating this rule may easily precipitate a violation of rules one and two. Rule number 11. No graffiti, destruction, or vandalism. Rule number 12. If you want to do something stupid, pick another day. These should be self-explanatory. Violation of these rules during a demonstration will tarnish the reputation of Anonymous. Harm the demonstration itself and leave you vulnerable to attention from law enforcement. Rule number 13. Anonymous is legion. Never be alone. Isolation during a protest marks you as a target for handlers who wish to provoke an angry reaction from you and other hostiles. In keeping with this principle, Rule number 14, Organize in squads of 10 to 15 people. Rule number 15, One or two megaphones per squad. A megaphone is helpful for maintaining the overall cohesion of a demonstration and spreading your message. However, too many will confuse the public and render you hearing impaired. Rule number 16, Know the dress code. Forming a loose yet reasonable dress code for protest members will help to maintain cohesion and get the public to take you seriously. Rule number 17. Cover your face. This will prevent your identification from videos taken by hostiles, other protesters or security. Use scarves, hats and sunglasses. Masks are not necessary, and donning them in the context of a public demonstration is forbidden in some jurisdictions. Rule number 18. Bring water. Rule number 19. Wear good shoes. Following these rules will assure your comfort during the demonstration. Keep in mind that demonstrations may often be quite lengthy. Rule number 20. Signs, flyers, and phrases. Have yours ready. Make sure that signs are large enough to read. Also ensure that the text on your signs and your phrases are pertinent to the target of the protest. Rule number 21. Prepare Lendable and complicated and accurate flyers to hand out to those who wish to know more regarding the motivations behind your actions. Finally, rule number 22, document the demonstration. Videos and pictures of the event may be used to corroborate your side of the story if law enforcement get involved. Furthermore, Posting images and videos of your heroic actions all over the Internet is bound to generate win, exhorting other Anonymous to follow your glorious example. If you follow these simple rules, the success of your action is virtually assured. However, keep in mind that the success of the demonstration as a whole hinges on the good behavior of all those who participate. Ignore these rules at your own peril, follow them, and victory will be yours. We are Anonymous. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Expect us.
1: So that may be one of the best examples for rules to follow in a protest that has ever been collected and released to the public in a wide way. It focuses on getting your message across in a peaceful and effective way, and it encourages civil behavior and expression by the group as a whole while discouraging destructive behavior with logic and passion. Some of my favorite rules are, rule number nine, no weapons. In this rule, they say, your weapons. You will not need them. This is, of course, a direct quote from Yoda in Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, when Yoda is training Luke. I also love rule number 12, if you want to do something stupid, pick another day. (laughs) That's classic. Scientology has a history of harassing its critics, filing criminal charges against detractors, and generally suing people. As a matter of fact, I just saw a video online today about a Florida bar owner who videotaped an under-construction penthouse rumored as being built by Tom Cruise. The bar owner's buddy was a construction foreman on the project and he invited him up to see it. The bar owner posted the video on Facebook and the Church of Scientology lawyers visited the guy's bar and made him take the video down, which he happily did while they were still there. Now, it's weird, first of all, because the video had nothing to do with Scientology as far as I know. It was just showing the stripped-down looking penthouse being built out and under construction, and it was rumored that it was for Tom Cruise. But the Church of Scientology put boots on the ground, as they say, to make the guy take the video down. Then, the bar owner claimed to have found a spy camera aimed at his house in a tree across the street. Not at his bar, but at his house. He has since put his home up for sale to move, and the construction foreman who invited the guy to see the in-progress penthouse has been fired. That's crazy. So, suffice it to say that it was this sort of predilection for harassment that prompted the anonymous code of conduct rule number 17. Cover your face. This will prevent your identification from videos taken by hostiles. It was rule number 17, cover your face, that prompted a discussion online about exactly how to do so. A few ideas were kicked around the message boards and the anonymous collective landed on the Guy Fox mask from the comic and later the film, V for Vendetta. It's a mask that is basically the same no matter where you buy it. It has a wry smile and a sarcastic expression. And it would make everyone look the same in a surreal way. It hearkened to the final scene in the comic V for Vendetta, where members of the society rise up against tyranny. It was perfect. It was genius. It was inspired. It put a face to a movement with no leadership except consensus. It visually conveys the message that none of us are as strong as all of us. So the Anonymous Declaration of War video was a call to action, and the Code of Conduct video added fuel to the reality that the Anons were planning to go to the protest, and the entire thing just built and built. But at the same time, there was an underlying sentiment of doubt. Is anyone going to actually do this? Are we really going to leave the proverbial basement? Are people really going to step out from behind the protection of the computer screen and take this fight to the streets and actually protest against the Church of Scientology? on february 10th 2008 they would find out there's a video online of a guy making a sort of vlog and he's going to the park where the anons and his city are supposed to meet up he gets there and he's alone in an empty park he waits for a while and starts to realize that he's the only one that has showed up he's about to leave when he sees green balloons in the air on the far corner of the park opposite from him He goes over there to find 200 members of Anonymous, all in Guy Fawkes masks, all with signs and flyers, all ready and very excited. He said it was the first time that any of them had met or seen anyone else from Anonymous and none of them could believe how many of them there were. They filled Times Square as they moved through it. Similar scenes played out in major cities around the world that early morning thousands of Anons on the streets protesting the Church of Scientology and having what looked to be a really fun and totally peaceful time. All of a sudden, they realized their power. And although they were anonymous, they were no longer alone. The Church of Scientology responded by posting their own video that defined Anonymous as terrorists and claimed that members of Anonymous had made 8,000 threatening or harassing phone calls, 3.5 million malicious emails, 141 million website hits, 10 acts of vandalism, 22 bomb threats, and 8 death threats against the Church of Scientology and its officers. Now, I'm not condoning any act of threat or violence, but 10 acts of vandalism and 30 threats of violence, and presumably no actual acts of violence, or they would have put that in the video too, is a pretty good ratio of non-violence when you compare it to tens of thousands of protesters in the streets and 8,000 phone calls, 3.5 million emails, 14 million website hits. It does seem that the vast majority of Anons followed their own rules of conduct, which is quite impressive for a fully decentralized organization with no leadership and no actual structure but ultimately the entire chanology op caused a rift within anonymous there were essentially the majority that was for it but also a very vocal group who thought the entire thing was negative destructive to anonymous as a whole and that it was bringing unnecessary and inaccurate attention to the movement in the end they may have been right The authorities did arrest a few anons for malicious computer fraud regarding the DDoS attacks. The maximum punishments received were a combination of one year incarceration and one year of supervised release, in which time those convicted were not allowed to use a computer. In 2010, WikiLeaks appeared as a way to find secret, abusive government plans of totalitarian regimes, mostly in places where the internet was censored, and expose those plans in free markets where they could be opposed before they were implemented. On the surface, this is a very noble idea, and it is exactly the purpose of WikiLeaks, as expressed by its founder, Julian Assange, also known as the hacker Mendax, who has been called the greatest hacker to ever walk the face of the earth. Now, this was all good and well, as long as Wikileaks was publishing plans being made by third world dictators and exposing atrocities that people in the Western world could rail against from their armchairs, and in some cases stop some of these bad things from moving forward. But in 2010, Wikileaks released diplomatic communications related to the U.S. presence in Iraq, and the press categorized this as the largest leak of classified U.S. documents in history. This ignited a debate about the tug-of-war between national and personal security and freedom of information that still rages today. The release of information caused PayPal, Amazon, and MasterCard to pull their services from WikiLeaks, making it impossible for people to donate to the website. Anonymous responded with Operation Payback... They almost instantly discovered and posted a laundry list of unsavory and arguably unethical websites that Amazon, PayPal, and MasterCard had been happily doing business with for years. These included neo-Nazi websites where you could purchase t-shirts with swastikas on them using your PayPal account, or porn sites that accepted MasterCard and had for decades, and so on and on and on. By this time, the numbers of anonymous members participating in the op were massive. They shut down the websites and processing capabilities of PayPal and MasterCard for extended periods of time. During this op, one tweet proclaimed, There are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's HTTP error 408 request timed out. A jab at the success of the op framed in the famous MasterCard slogan. At this point, Anonymous sort of splintered into a few various groups, uh, one of them being Lulz Security, or more commonly known as LulzSec, that's L U L Z S E C, who took on the media and hacked a few news sites and posted fake stories to discredit the organizations as a response to security officers submitting fake documents to WikiLeaks, then revealing those documents to be fake to try to discredit WikiLeaks. These government agencies and their contractors also engaged in infiltrating the 4chan world and pretended to be an anonymous, and the entire thing culminated in the events which resulted in the entrapment and arrest of journalist Barrett Brown. Now, Barrett Brown is a very interesting figure, and the things he has both endured and discovered, and the ways he was framed and arrested, provides more than enough material for its own episode, which you can definitely expect from Renegade Files in the future, so look for that Barrett Brown episode researching this episode has been really fun and I've collected some scandalous and downright intriguing information along the way all of this is available for you in the Dark Intel Files in the interest of making information free I'll put all of the Dark Intel Files for this episode in a free and public post on Patreon that anyone can see and read if they want to in that free file you can also get a long list of my favorite hacker and cyberpunk movies some that might be new to you so check it out If you'd like access to tons of exclusive content, subscribe to the Renegade Files Patreon page while you're there, at any amount you choose, and get cool rewards for helping the show stay independent and ad-free. So in the end, the short version of what happened was this. Anonymous sort of split into LulzSec and everyone else. LulzSec went on to hack tons of official sites like the CIA, various police departments, government agencies, email accounts, and more. They posted the information they got with abandon. They hacked news sites and put up fake stories. In the end, they became the monsters they were fighting against. All of this was tantamount to poking a hornet's nest for no reason, and the response was to make an example out of anyone the authorities could find whether they were actually a part of LulzSec or not. So the authorities just lumped them all into one hacker group, called it by the anonymous moniker, and went to work. They arrested people spread across the country in California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Alabama, Florida, Ohio, D.C., New York, and Massachusetts. But a grand total of only 16 people, the anonymous 16 as they were eventually called. They wanted to send a wide-reaching message. They wanted to arrest people from one side of the country to the other because they knew they could never get them all. So they spread it out so everyone would tell their friends. In a way, it may have worked. Today, Anonymous is a much different animal. People claiming to be anonymous post videos, and they may still accomplish some pretty good ops against targets like ISIS or Putin or whomever, but it's not the same as it was at one time. Following the arrests, the 4chan boards became pure paranoia, and anyone suggesting that they do anything remotely considered hacktivism is immediately called out as being with the FBI, so not much gets done there anymore. There are still members of Anonymous, and there will probably always be. They work from the shadows. Even when they succeed, we probably never hear much about it. They keep to their kind a bit more. They suffer few noobs. So, what do you think? Is a DDoS attack a valid form of protest? Is it really any different than protesting racism in the 50s by blocking access to a diner that only allows white people inside? Maybe it is the same thing fundamentally, but the people who blocked diners back then did get arrested too. They knew they might. They did it anyway because they believed that doing so was the right thing. As a society, we will always be challenged with balancing personal and national privacy and security with the right to access information and speak our minds. Or hopefully we'll always be challenged with balancing that. Does it bother you when you chat with a friend about their new kitten and then see kitten chow ads on your Pinterest homepage that you never saw there before? Do you think the federal government has the right to comb over your bank account anytime you spend or earn some defined amount? Do you think Anonymous was right to shut down Hal Turner's neo-Nazi radio show? Or what about the Scientology website? You can't say yes to one and no to the other without making a judgment about the content of the speech or the actions of both. And if it's okay for PayPal and MasterCard to stop doing business with WikiLeaks, but keep doing business with the KKK and the Nazis, then is it not also okay for Anonymous to call that out and protest those businesses online for a weekend by blocking their virtual doors? Do you long for the days when Anonymous was hacking the Habbo hotel pool? <laughs> Here is a quote from one of the Anonymous 16, once she got free again. This was in 2014. This girl was in her early twenties. She said, quote, I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent, or if you worship pigeons or Scientology, or if you're Catholic or atheist or Methodist. I don't care about that. Your opinion matters. I don't care if I disagree with it. I don't care if I hate your guts. Your opinion matters. Now, that's a far cry from the cancel culture social justice warriors we seem to find protesting today, or at least find the corporate media showing us as protesting today. All of us want our data to be safe. But let's not let that desire for safety allow big data and the government regulatory agencies they collude with to fool us with false promises for the safety of our data that we must buy with the relinquishment of our own freedom to access information and say what we believe. Thank you for listening to Renegade Files, your personal portal for unsolved mysteries, paranormal events, and covert culture. New episodes post every 10 days on the 1st, the 11th, and the 21st every month. So, between me, you, and the NSA, I'm your host, Lex Gordon, saying, It's over 9,000! Stay wild, robot child.